Astor Street Opry Company will be doing a tribute to Shanghai and Astoria outdoors this Friday in the parking lot of its playhouse. The idea is to provide some theatrical fun, safe from COVID-19. You'll find details on the Facebook page for Astor Street Opry Company. This would have been Shanghai's 36th year. In the following program, recorded in 2013, we look back at Shanghai's origins with the people who created it. Welcome to the Human Beat. I'm Roger Rocca. Shanghai in Astoria is now in its 29th year, long enough that many people who live here have no recall of how it started or who started it. To learn about Shanghai's history, I interviewed some of the original players, Dr. Del Corbett, the first director, Greg Miner, the original Max Crook, Liam Dunn, who wrote most of Shanghai's music, and Judith Nyland, who has nurtured the show and the Astor Street Opry Company for most of its 29 years. Dr. Corbett joined the faculty at Clatsop Community College in the fall of 1982 and wanted to start summer theater in Astoria. That first summer, uh, did three shows. That was sort of very, very lukewarm reception for, for, as far as audience is concerned. And, uh, but we established a summer theater budget and the summer theater program. So I went through the next year and the following summer uh, tried the same thing. Frequently, there were more people on stage than in the audience. <laughs> Bud Forrester, the editor of the paper, was there one time and said, you know, it's really too bad we don't have more audience than this. So he did a little work, a couple of editorials, uh, which I'm sure didn't do any harm. Uh, but then... But the shows you were doing at that time were straight plays? Were standard kind of. One right. uh, did one musical and one half musical, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. Sure, okay. So well, fairly well-known plays. Yeah. yeah. And uh, same kind of fare you'd find in, in most cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, during that... Uh, third winter, this uh, theater group and I were sitting around and I said, well, maybe one of the reasons we don't have audience is that when people come to the coast, they don't want to see stuff that they can see back in Portland or hmm. Seattle. Hmm. They want to see something different, something unique. And so I said, well, let's have some fun. Let's get an old melodrama script and uh, we can do everything way over the top. But uh, there were six people involved and it looked at a few. Uh, Egil Unander, who was a very creative soul, a, a lovable bastard. No. And uh, uh, he and his girlfriend, Tammy Phillips, who was a student of mine. Uh, Liam, uh, Edna Packard, who's now deceased, uh, rest her soul. And uh, Greg Miner, who was the original villain, who has never been equaled. I'm not sure exactly how it all started, but, you know, it didn't start out with just a play. It started out as little skits, Mm -hmm. melodramas that we took to local bars. Did you know that? Well, that was the Miss Vivian, uh, not Miss Vivian, the uh, Jane Barnes thing, right? Yes, that's it, Jane Jane Barnes. Barnes, And and we did these uh, runs, these bus runs from bar (laughs) to bar to bar. 
And I know See, we stole that idea. <laughs> yeah, and I went to like Fiddler's Green and whatever else was going on at that time. And I can remember, there's like six different bars. And didn't Edna Packard have her temperance league <laughs> Yeah, sign? she had her temperance league thing. And we all did all these like five-minute skits. Karen Beecham. Mm-hmm. Karen Beecham and stuff. Kim Worst. Right. And that was that whole thing, I thought, was the, the seed of that thought came from Edna Packard and Del Corbett, I think. I believe. Well, and then Tammy wrote the script. So I no, don't... I'm talking about those little jaunts. Yeah, that too. was totally it. Yeah. Totally. And then I think from there, I think what happened was I think that we had so much fun that that I think Del Corbett saw in that potential and decided to pull these different elements together. Tammy Phipps, Karen Beach, and Nick Packard. I'm not sure. Were you there? At no, that I time? was the second year. I was the hotel that brought these different people together and stuff and said, you know, I think this is something that we can work. And if we use something with the idea of a, of a theme of a story, whether it's fishing, timbering, whatever, and put it into a melodramatic, melodramatic format, that we have something here that really could take off and be fun for the community. Well, at some point you went from looking at other melodrama scripts, like The Drunkard and so on, right. to thinking we'll make our own. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was, uh, I think that was mostly Egel's idea uh, because he knew the Scandinavian community, make it something that belongs here, that's unique here. And the fact that Astoria was a Shanghai city, right. uh, that lent itself to that too. Uh, the Castle and Cook Cannery, now the Castle and Crook Cannery in Shanghai, uh, fit right in. Uh, and of course, the uh, with the people that we had, and the the Scandinavian characteristic, uh, all these things kind of fit together to make some pretty good comedy. There were you know some things uh, that I certainly wanted in a melodrama, a musical melodrama. It had to be musical first of all. Sure. It had to be cabaret style, you know, seating, and off campus so we could have booze at it and uh, throw things. Originally. You know, <laughs> All these digressions. The first year, we had peanuts on the table. And the people threw peanuts. They can hurt. And so forth. (laughs) And hurt and slippery on the floor. Dangerous. So we went to something a little softer. (laughs) I watched the first two performances of it at the old Eagles Lodge downtown. And Dell had been telling me about it. And I was in a theater class with uh, Tammy she was writing the bare bones of a classic melodrama and uh, as part of her theater program. And Della told me about it and that it was coming together and they had it all together. You know, just all the stock characters, you know, maybe even cliches, and that they'd put it together. And I went and saw it and it was really enthusiastic and it was like a bare bones production, almost no scenery or anything. A lot was left up to the imagination and they had no original songs, and they were using borrowed songs from the 20s, you know, songs of the period that maybe didn't fit quite the plot, but at least it was putting in some music. And then he asked me if I could write some uh, songs. I'd been writing music for quite a while before then, and I had spent quite a bit of time in the cannery, so the first thing I wrote was the cannery song. Had, had you had a band at that time, or how were you in Yeah, I had a band called The Perfect Strangers, and then we were morphing into The Pagan Pancakes. Uh-huh. And, and that was about that time. And the first song of 
uh, the cannery song. We all work in the cannery, slaving morning, noon, and night. Well, that came about. I used to be the fish weigher for a whole bunch of ladies, all dressed in white, all freezing and wet and smelling of fish. That's the glamour of show business <laughs> and everything. And I would go by the stations of all the ladies, and I would take all their fillets, and I would weigh them and mark it on a little slip and hand it to them. And I would going around to all this circle of ladies all day long. And it was pretty much a bleak, horrible environment to be in. And I found the only way to really make it go well was just to joke around with the ladies all day long. And that was the seed for we all work in the cannery, slave, you know, we slime the sturgeon, fillet the salmon, you know, that's what we were doing. And so I presented that to them and they thought, great, that's the first song. And so then, your lyrics came out of your own experience. You knew yeah. exactly how the cannery operated. Yeah, and and how the ladies, you know, were feeling and what they talked about and joked about just to get through the damn day, you know. Right. Well, then as now, I think people did pretty much the exact same thing all day long. It's just production line, cold, wet, smelly, horrible, miserable. You have to transcend it, you know, with the people that you're working with and try and form something and comedy. And the line in the song is about what you do to the salmon? You, we slime the sturgeon, you know, which, you okay. know, which we were doing. You do that with a spoon along its spine, you know. Fillet the salmon, and then you have to stuff it into a can, you know, because each can, you know, slime the sturgeon, fillet the salmon, stuff it into a can. But we didn't come here to work in this dump. We came here to find a man or a woman because, hey, what else are you going to think about? So that was the first song you came yeah. up with. And were you actually, did you then actually become a character in the play as well? Or were Never you just writing did. the music? Okay, so no, you were doing... Uh, after a couple of years at the Eagles downtown, uh, the Astor Street Opry Company had access to the two lower floors of the Astor Hotel. And we built a stage. Don Najar, amongst other people, you know, is good at that. And Dell, they built a stage and we got some prosceniums and some old stuff to make it look really good. And then I just became the percussionist along with Jennifer Gutenberger on piano and then Dave Bennett, one of our programmers right. here on banjo. And I just started writing songs particular for the characters and the situation and then just let go of the borrowed songs. So we ended up with all original songs. Well, and I, I remember the, we, we never had an opening song for a while and I was asked to do an opening song and I thought, okay. And it was just like a scene from one of those Hollywood movies you know, like a Broadway opening. Hey, kid, we open in two days. You know, you want to stay on the payroll? We don't have an opening sign. Ah, don't tell me about your love life and your problems. Come on, kid, this is Tin Pan Alley. Produce. <laughs> so I thought, okay, yeah, it has to be. Somebody hire me as an actor, please. I'm going crazy. <laughs> and, and I just walked around. I think I had a pack of Camel filters and about three cups of coffee. I just walked around, just kind of going... Do, 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 do. When the moon shines brighter in Astoria, oh, when you start singing in the rain, singing in the rain, the, your your troubles run and hide. You know, not that they go away. Your troubles run and hide. They are washed out by the tide and overly optimistic. They're never coming back this way again. But of course they do. But you know, you have to. This is the opening of the show. It has to be optimism. And yeah, I wrote that in probably fifteen or twenty minutes. Got together with Jennifer oh Goodenberger on the piano and said, "This is the chords." Here's the beginning, here's the lyrics, and then the scariest part of writing a song, you know, because it's kind of a personal thing, is 
presenting it to the cast for the first time because of the fear of rejection. You know, yeah. you think this is really a good idea and it's going to work. And all it takes is just a few people, you know, to sneer at you or right. turn up their nose. I'm not singing that crap. That's <laughs> terrible. You know, and so you have to, you know, be vulnerable and be open, you know, for rejection. And then when it's accepted, you think, oh, God, you know. And same thing with the closing number. We needed a closing number and we didn't have one. And the same thing about, you know, you know, 20 minutes, mm -hmm. you know, you just, you know what needs to be said and you have to risk, you know, you know, that you've got the instincts for it. You know, it was, it was a real thrill. And even the number in the middle where it's uh, Midsummer's Lament, it's a cappella number, you know, which nice, you know, which helps because it's a, uh, it's a contrast, you know, uh, Midsummer's Day is here with us again. What can I say? I have lost my boyfriend. That was originally, I'd written that before Shanghai came on as a Valentine's Day song. Mm -hmm. I'd lost my girlfriend and it was Valentine's Day is here with us again. What can I say? I have lost my girlfriend. And instead of summer's here, the stars are falling, like catch a falling star. It was winter's here, the sky is falling. So you change a couple of words and you get a whole different feeling and you, you just steal from yourself. And, and it's it's a real thrill and a privilege to be able to, you know, be in on doing it and having people accept it and make it come alive. And over the past 30 years, I think, I think I asked Judith Nyland and she said last count from all the tickets they had, about 80,000 people yeah. have seen that. And so, and there's been probably maybe a thousand cast members. And so if you could imagine a thousand cast members singing all those songs in a Coliseum of 80,000 people. Yeah. That's exciting. That, you know, and that's, you know, you got to say thanks a lot. <laughs> Liam was, year. Liam Dunn was such a talent in that regard. I mean, he did write almost all the music and I felt it was amazing that he came up with such mm -hmm. interesting lines and and then it was choreographed and it was done in such a way that it was very entertaining and very well balanced show it just had the, the perfect balance of script music uh fun in it that uh it just all seemed to come together and it was something that later on as I, as different actors came in and they embellished different parts fleshed it out more and it just became more and more alive and well thought out and fun First year was at the Eagles, and then we moved into the uh, Astro Hotel, which was it was a a war zone. We had to clean that whole thing out and put the stage up and rehearse and open. Anyway, Astoria was somewhat different place at that time, as you mentioned. That hotel was not in the beautiful shape it's in now, and the town was on. Yeah, you know, the, the hotel. 80s, it was the in the was renovation stages for right. the for the the rentals upstairs. But downstairs in that main lobby, that was their workspace and dump ground. Right. And they, I, I don't know how many big uh, dumpster loads of stuff we took out of there. Uh, but man, talk about an atmosphere. I have a photograph I took from the stage uh, looking back toward the audience. And if you ever saw any pictures of the, uh, the in-yard theaters in the uh, 16th, 17th century, this was it. Mm -hmm. but it, well, was, it was almost like a, uh, a, a painting 
uh, a Lautrec painting of French theater. Yes. They had just redid the upstairs, but they left the lower two floors the way they were. Mm -hmm. It was called the Pink Elephant when I first moved to town because people wanted to just take it down. They didn't want it. But when we went in, there was rubble waist high that the actors had to remove the rubble. I mean, it, it looked like something like you'd see in Dresden, you know, yeah. during the World War Absolutely. II. It was terrible. It was the, uh, the boat scene, the boat chase was not in there the first year. And Liam, the second year, uh, suggested we had that because he was running the, the orchestra. And then he tried to talk me into that. Ah, this is too much, too much hassle, too much trouble. How do you do it? And okay, if you want it, you put it together. And he did. So then we had the, the, the one-dimensional waves right. operated by hand. Anyway, uh, Liam put that together, and uh, the whole idea of that was the, uh, the Keystone Cops thing and, and the fight. And the reason for deciding to do this well, if we're not going to have audiences anyway, we're going to do something that we want to do that's just fun to do. Right. And so that was the attitude from the beginning. And it, was, it wasn't over the top, but it was definitely melodramatic acting, the whole thing. The first night was uh, not bad. I think we had uh, 150 seats in there, maybe 100. It was about uh, half full. Uh-huh. And uh, but the first the opening weekend was about like that, and then it got better. And by the third week, uh, we were almost full house. The word got around. Three days. Yeah. yeah. And what uh, sold me on it? Ooh, where was it? Talking with uh, John England. I had to get some boat stuff naturally. Uh, this was uh, I think the second week, and uh, John had come and brought uh, part of his family. And uh, he was talking with somebody else while I was standing at the counter there. He was talking about Shanghai. He said, that thing was so much fun, I'm going to take my mother next week. And uh, John England, you know, right. he's, not, uh, he's not an opera aficionado, and I'm not sure about fine arts in general, uh, but if he likes it, he's going to spread the word, and that's the kind of audience that we want to appeal to. And that kind of told me that, hmm, maybe there's something here. Mm -hmm. So we started taking a closer look at what we had. It is very, very much like the Shakespearean structure. Introduction, ah. a lot of start, things start to go on, different directions. At the end, they all come together. Two or three subplots all get tied together. Mm -hmm. And uh, a decision about Crook, or the villain, you know, uh, obviously, the baseline theme of it is uh, evil does not pay, crime does not pay, uh, good wins out. But Crook escapes. Where does he go? We don't know. He comes back next season. That's where he is. <laughs> uh, so that was done on purpose so that uh, Crook could be continued if anybody had the idea of doing it. Well, I've never did theater till I started doing this with Dell. Well, I started with a play before that, but it was Dell. It was because Dell realized that we needed a summer theater activity that wasn't just a theater activity. It's like an event. It's a, it's like I refer to it as Barnum and Bailey. It's like if you study Barnum and Bailey, he really knew what he was doing. It was like the moment you stepped up to the door, 
you were part of it. And that's different than just regular theater. And we needed a summer activity that all ages could do. So it was, and it was very connected to the college theater program. To, it was the volunteer base to keep the college educational program alive. And it really worked. And the hotel was just because we were crazy and we wanted to do something different. And we all saw the potential in this town. And, and it was fun. I mean, we hung big old drapes that were dirty and worn as the dressing rooms and um, everybody pitched in, everybody helped, everybody, like I said, we spent weeks scrubbing out the rubble, you know, taking out dumpsters of rubble, and we had to wash the walls because of all the plaster dust and everything like that. Then we built the stage, and it was only a temporary stage the first year, meaning we only had permission to be in there three months, so we had to take the stage out at the end of the summer. And oh, it wasn't until the next that, year that we made right. a deal, Let's we want to be in here full time. So it was like always building and rebuilding and building and rebuilding. Don Najjar was part of that then. He's down in Eugene, and he was the uh, second sneak, and he was the guy who, um, he did a lot of the technical, brought up a lot of the technical aspect of the show, helped us with that. I wrote this song probably um, maybe in 1990 or something. I, I was in Portland, and uh, I wasn't part of the play that year, but I was just <clears throat> reminiscing about how I liked that part so well, the villain part. And, and I thought it, what it was missing was some kind of solo, something that would just focus on me. <laughs> I don't want to share it with a sneak. Because <laughs> I do share a song with sneak, but I want it about me. <laughs> so I wrote this song, and it says... Oh, how I love to hear the sound of a maiden in distress. It may sound cruel, but not to me. It's how I measure my success. Oh, I could be a nice guy, give her bonbons and bouquets, take her out to meet the folks, take her out on holiday. The next thing you're married, she has your head turned upside down, and you wonder... How do one of our kids get blue eyes when both our eyes are brown? So I prefer to make a stir with my dastardly deeds. So she'll be poor, not a penny more, just chalk it off to greed. Oh, we all have our dark spots. I know you'll say it's true. So don't look down on me just because mine are through and through. Oh, I may be a villain wearing colors of the night. But if it's any consolation, my underwear is white. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's so there. It's so there. I could see that being one of the oleo acts we take on cruise ships. <laughs> well, you saw the show last night, Greg. Yes, it was wonderful. Wonderful. Does it, does it feel kind of as it did when you did it? Is it played the same way? Is it played differently? Well, there definitely are a lot of bit parts that I didn't anticipate, and uh, I didn't get some of the jokes when I – I think some of the jokes that may have still been there uh, back in 1985 and onward that I wasn't catching in my youth. For instance, that knee coming up with Yako. Uh, really? Seriously? <laughs> 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 but uh, I, I found myself laughing probably hardest at that bit. <laughs> and Michael then, Thompson started that. Yeah, it was, it, it was wonderful. And then, um, and yeah, it brought back some nostalgias and, and feelings of connectedness and reminiscing that, uh, of a part of my life that, you know, was important actually to me. Um, it actually um, brought an introvert, which is myself, out to be more of an extrovert, which 
is pretty difficult to do for in particular for me and so in that respect it was really um kind of a growth experience yeah and it was also that community connection you get almost a spiritual connection that you get from the rest of the cast members that you, i don't think you can ever um get that same experience in most well at least i've never been able to to duplicate that experience in any kind of other uh, phenomena whether it's church or in the community or what what it's there's a special kind of bonding that you do in the theater. And I think it's so much because you depend on your other characters to come through and deliver what they're supposed to. So so, you're, so your underwear is not out there hanging. <laughs> so I do think it used to be played straighter, not cornier, but much more subtle and much quieter perhaps and much more very uh, stylistic. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it would have lasted if we always did that. It's a blending. So what we do is we sort of, each director takes it different directions and casts. So so sometimes it gets too far out, and then we pull in a type of director that pulls it back, and then it gets too far out, and we pull it too back. And, you know, people make changes, and they think they're the funniest changes in the world, and that director <laughs> says, yes, we're going to do it. And the next year somebody says, how come that isn't in the script? And I said, because it wasn't in the original script. Now, if you can remember what you did last year <laughs> and do it exactly the same way with the same improvisational kind of fun because that actor is doing it and that actor thought of it and together they made that happen go for it but otherwise it goes right back to the raw script i think the present day reality is that everything stays about the same and then expands slowly which is a true form of growth our roots are good we're stable in fact in some of the most treacherous times we ever had we're finding the local support to be stronger right but we have problems because as our area gentrified I guess is what they called it as as people moved in we weren't keeping up with that so that's why we realized after the fourth move if we didn't buy property if we didn't land ourselves on ground we wouldn't be able to keep floating from a place because it kept going up and up and up and the moves were becoming horrendous so we did everything was great we were moving along we were in the right timing and then the economy totally crashed which meant instead of getting the building we have a mortgage on the building, which is huge. That's all right. At least we're not moving, so we're able to grow. We do concessions, which actually bring in quite a bit. We do souvenirs. We do raffle, which is great. And then that's also a way that, again, it's back to the family aspect. I see the whole community as part of our family, so the businesses, I, they want to participate. They want to help us, but not people don't have cash. Mm-hmm. So I said give me what you got and I'll turn it into cash. So that's what we do. But all that helps our occupancy. That's not really going towards the bathrooms. That has to be additional, which means grants, auxiliary fundraising, which we've done some, a lot of in-kind. We've already got a lot of people who have said they're going to support us. And you can donate time, services, goods. You can buy tickets. You can encourage your friends to come. You could try out for a play. You could show up for our work parties. You could like us on Facebook. You can make it by um, contacting us through uh, email, through my email, which is on Facebook or on our website, or you can call the box office, or you can just really connect with us on Facebook. I'll tell you that really does work because everything that's going on in the moment is there. And if if you message me or something and you want to find out more to help, that's the way to go. It's even better than our website these days. Did you find Shanghai on Facebook? It's it's Astor Street Opry Company, our page. The, The first year in the hotel, uh, we started keeping records of out-of-towners, and uh, that came in at 60% of out-of-towners. 
Oh, interesting. So 40% is, is locals and 60% yeah. is and visitors. Every time it has been counted since then, it has stayed at 60% interesting. of out-of-towners. It's a, kind of a big deal for the Astor Street Opry Company finally to have purchased its own home. Oh, So well, they have permanence now. Oh, yeah, and it, it's part of that... Uh, uh, kind of uh, unbelievable growth story and success story, I guess, of a show uh, making all this possible. So congratulations. Shanghai is in its 29th year this year. It will have its 30th next, actually almost the same age as KMUN, which just celebrated its 30th. Right. So yeah. it started uh, yeah. just about the same time. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it is part of our really part of our cultural fabric here and uh, you owe it to yourself to go take in a performance of shanghai yeah, as well as living history living history it is <laughs> yes it is kind of a, a little bit wacky look at the actual history of this area right. yeah. del corbett thank you very much thank you roger We've been listening to The Origins of Shanghai in Astoria, recorded in 2013.